Good morning. We are Bonnie and Sam Nickel, and we've been attending a TCC together since August 2022. The reading today is from Luke 10, 38 to 42. <clears throat> As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam and Bonnie. Sam and Bonnie and myself, our history overlaps. Uh, Sam was on staff at my dad's church for a number of years. And uh, dear friends, they've meant a lot to me over the years. It's a blessing to have them here and part of TCC. Uh, if you missed it, when Norb um, emphasized one engagement a little over the second one, the second Anna Jenkins, his daughter. Um, so we're excited not only to extend congratulations to Anna and Hunter, but also to Norb and Tina. That's a very exciting time for them. And one more note on the friendship book, um, Norb's birthday is on Wednesday. And so uh, if you want to wish Norb a happy birthday, nothing would make him happier than if you all signed the friendship book. So <laughs> apparently <laughs> you can do that, throw a note in there. All right, let's pray together. Father God, it is so good to be together. It's so good to open your word in the company of friends and to posture our hearts before you and in such a way, Lord, that we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. So help us to receive from you this morning all that you have for us. And God, we pray that the distractions and the many things that might call our attention away from your word this morning would just be silenced. Help us to receive from you all that you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, I um, am a proud dad in the fact that I get to make the pancakes in the house. How many dads are like the pancake dads? Am I the only one? Come on. Is that just a, yeah, okay, a few of us, yeah. When it comes to making pancakes, I'm the guy in the house who makes the pancakes. And over the years, my pancake process has evolved and changed. I used to use pancake mix out of a box. No more. Always making it from scratch, uh, using only the best ingredients, and um, working hard to get the temperature just right griddles so that those pancakes look absolutely amazing. Uh, well, this past week, I was making pancakes for my family, and I get that first batch going, and I watch the little bubbles come up in the pancakes, and I flip them, and they're just perfect. They are golden. They look amazing. And so I'm like, okay, this is great. And I, I get these pancakes ready for my kids, and I put them in front of my kids, and they aren't going to appreciate the goldenness, perfection of these pancakes. Then I go on to keep making pancakes for me and my wife, and I'm ready to make more golden pancakes. But then I had a thought. What goes great with pancakes? 
sausage, right? So I get going, I pull out the Instant Pot, and I throw some sausage in there, and uh, I get sipping my coffee, I turn on some worship music, and I have that moment in the kitchen, like, oh no, the pancakes, right? I burned the second batch of pancakes, right? And I only had so much batter to work with. My distraction in the kitchen led to burned pancakes. And I wish that I could say that the kitchen was the only place where I experienced distraction in my life. But when I think about the various things I'm involved in in life, the various ambitions I have, the various desires I have, it's it's just a matter of fact that I am an easily distracted person. And maybe you can relate. Be it my ambition to be a better runner and I can have all these great plans laid out for how to run faster and the workouts that I need to do, I just get distracted. I don't engage with them the way that I know that I should. Or be it in my relationships, my relationships with my kids, with my wife, I look at those relationships and there's a certain way that I know I should be or a posture I should have. But so many times my wife is pouring out her heart to me and I have to admit to her, sorry, honey, I was not listening to a word that you said. Could you please repeat that? I was distracted. Or I think about my relationship with the Lord and how I hear this invitation of Jesus to come to him and experience life abundant. And it's not lost on me some of the things that are required for me to actually enter into that life that he has for me. But so easily, I get distracted. I don't pray the way that I know I should. I maybe don't read scripture uh, with the right type of discipline that I know that I should have. And so I can look at the landscape of my life and see how distraction and a lack of focus can cause all sorts of problems, And what the reality is that these areas in my life end up getting a little bit burnt, like those pancakes. And what's not helpful is that we live in a time where our attention is even harder to hold on to. We're pulled in so many directions. There's no shortage of things to give our attention to. There is no shortage of goals that we could reach. There's no shortage of ambitions for us to re- achieve or experiences that we can have. And what makes that even worse is that we live in a day and age where we are glued to our phones. And if you watch the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, it kind of exposed this reality that the social media platforms we use on our phones are engineered to get what? Our attention. They are fighting for our attention. We think that these things are free for us to use. And while they're free for us to use, the reality is that we are the product. (laughs) And they sell our attention to advertisement firms who in turn look at us and try to sell us an image of the good life. They show us a picture of all the different things that are necessary for us to experience the certain type of life that we all think that we need to live. And suddenly because of all of this noise and all these things that we're hearing, all these invitations that we receive to engage in life a certain way, suddenly everything feels necessary. Where it doesn't feel right to settle in any area of our lives. It doesn't feel right to settle for less than best. Less than best. Be it from our parenting to the way we engage maybe in school with our friends. Be it to our family lives, to our careers, vacations, hobbies, our financial portfolios. To settle or underachieve feels lazy or as if we're not living in our full potential. But the fruit of all of this in the life of our culture is that we are a very exhausted group of people. We are overcommitted. We are anxious. We are troubled. We are hurried as we try to keep up with the various demands in our lives and in our culture. We are running after one thing to another. 
Psychologists are using um, new, new types of diagnoses in the last 50 years like hurry sickness and decision fatigue to diagnose various people. And we are increasingly becoming an overcommitted, anxious, hurried, and exhausted culture. Running after all these things that we believe are necessary. But do we ever stop to ask the question, what is the most necessary thing? In the Gospels, we read an encounter that Jesus has with a guest in the home of Mary and Martha. And this encounter and the conversation that follows challenges our ideas of what we may feel is necessary. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus and his disciples are traveling around and they end up in the home of Mary and Martha. Both Mary and Martha engage with their guest in a different way. Mary decides to engage with Jesus in such a way where she sits down at his feet, enjoys his presence, listens to his teaching as his words fill the air of their living room space. She sits and enjoys his presence, takes in every word. Martha, on the other hand, is in the kitchen, we assume, working frantically, trying hard to engage with her guest in such a way where she creates the most amazing, hospitable experience. You that Martha is working to, to cook the best meal that Jesus has ever tasted. While she's probably aware that he is staying at all these different the way she wants her house to be the best. But Martha is feeling the exhaustion of it, the weight of it, the burden of creating this meal and this space for Jesus. So she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, I'm trying to do all this stuff, but my sister, Mary, isn't helping me. We don't know if Martha's having this conversation with Jesus privately. We don't know if, she, if Martha is, is having this conversation with him in front of everyone else or if she pulled him aside. But Martha essentially rebukes her sister. She says that Mary's being lazy. Mary's not being helpful. We read this response from Jesus. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Where Martha had hoped that Jesus would rebuke Mary, Jesus actually affirms her. He affirms her choice. He affirms her sitting at her feet in contrast to running around the kitchen, busy and frantic with Martha. Jesus challenges Martha's priorities. Jesus challenges her thinking around what she believed to be the most necessary. Jesus challenges her focus in that moment. He called her out for being distracted and for having misaligned priorities. Martha was called out for serving in a way that kept her from being present to Jesus. Now, Jesus does not say that what Martha was doing was bad. He does not say that cooking and trying to be hospitable in and of itself was bad. But Jesus critiques the worry and the anxiety that Martha had behind it. Martha is critiqued for engaging in life from a posture of worry and anxiety that leads ultimately to her neglecting Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, is commended. She is commended for choosing to place herself in Jesus' presence and to receive from Jesus his teaching. So this is the one thing that is necessary according to Jesus in this conversation. Living with a heart postured in the presence of Jesus and receiving his word. 
That is what Jesus says is necessary. If we were to use language from the gospel of John in John chapter 15, it's living, abided in Christ. Friends, well, the world invites us to believe that so many things are necessary. Jesus is calling us to a primary focus and to live believing that there is ultimately necessity in one thing. Mary postured herself in the presence of Christ. She heard his word. And in the context of this conversation, and I believe that the way that the gospel writer Luke presents it to us, we are invited to see the necessity of posturing ourselves in the presence of Christ and receiving his word. I'm curious, how do you respond to this account in the gospels? What runs through your mind? When you hear about Jesus confronting Martha, do you come to Martha's defense? You're kind of like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, come on, man. Like, Martha's just trying to be a good host. She's trying to cook a good meal. She's trying to prepare this great space for you. Can't you be grateful? Come on, Jesus. Like, you need to eat, right? Does that rise up within you? I know that rises up in me. Are you slightly angry at Jesus? For insinuating that Martha's working too hard? That hard work should be commended. Hard work should be honored. Hard work should be held up on a pedestal. That's not what Jesus is saying in this conversation. Do you hear this and feel maybe some indifference? That's great for Mary, but that's just, that's not me. I'm not in a season of life where I can rest in the way that Mary's resting at Jesus' feet. I will rest when I'm dead. And I can spend all eternity with Jesus, right? Or when you hear this, are you full of curiosity? Is it possible that the one thing we're actually called to and created for as human beings is to have a posture of rest at the feet of Jesus? Is that possible? Does this story fill you with curiosity? Does this story fill you with longing? Man, I'm way more like Martha than I'd like to admit. And when I look at Mary, I know that's what I want. Because I too feel caught up in the hurry and the busyness of life. I too feel anxious and troubled about many things. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that I don't have to be. You don't have to be anxious and troubled about many things. You can come. Sit in Jesus' presence, receive his word, focus on the one thing that is necessary. How should we respond to this message? I wonder what happened after this recorded conversation. Because isn't it interesting that Luke doesn't tell us? Like, just imagine the scenario. Imagine the tension. If, if Martha would have confronted Mary in the presence of all the people there, imagine the tension of the room. Whoa! What's everyone feeling? This is super awkward. You know, Martha's our host. Jesus just like totally offended her in front of everybody. What does Martha do? Luke doesn't tell us what Martha does. We're not told if Martha decides to run to the kitchen and shut everything down and come back and sit at Jesus' feet. Luke doesn't tell us if Martha just says, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to sit with my sister here. Luke doesn't tell us if Martha storms off to the kitchen in a huff. 
We aren't told. And I think that we're not told on purpose. I think that we're not told because we too, all of us in this room, are like Martha. All of us in this room are facing a choice moment by moment. Do we allow our attention to be pulled and live distracted from the voice of Jesus? Or do we orient our hearts, minds, and bodies to the one thing that Jesus says is necessary? Luke doesn't tell us what happens because we're meant to see ourselves standing in Martha's house. We are meant to see ourselves in the same situation, facing the same choice, moment by moment, day by day. Are we going to live by all the things the world says is necessary, or are we going to live by the one thing that Jesus says is necessary? That is the choice that confronts us in this message. And Jesus' message is clear, that while much demands our attention, while much leads us to feel troubled or anxious, we must give ourselves to living with such a posture where we are keeping company with God. To one place, a single space where we are to put ourselves, put our hearts, put our minds, put our activities Friends, this teaching is not to say that we stop doing all the things that we're called to do. Rather, it's saying that we need to engage in all we do with a posture of fellowship with Jesus. Our schooling, those of you in junior high and high school, the way you go about your education in school, the way you handle yourself in the school hallways and on your sports field, doing that with a posture of keeping fellowship with Jesus. To you parents and those with lots of housework and various demands around the home, the invitation in this story is to engage in all of that in a posture of keeping company with Jesus. As we go to our workplaces and engage in our, pra- in our practices as doctors and lawyers and engineers and accountants, as teachers and educators, we do all of it while keeping company with God. In our leisure, our hobbies, our vacationing, doing it all from that one place that Mary chose to set herself the feet of Jesus. Are we willing to change the way we engage with things that we're called to do in in order to do so in the company of Jesus? For us to live by this one thing that is necessary, it might mean changing our expectations of what those things look like. It might be allowing our financial situation to be impacted. It might be allowing our relationships to be impacted. It might mean that we say no to things that we think are important. But friends, I think what Jesus is calling us to is to do everything that we can so that we can live for that one thing that is necessary. So how do we respond to this message? And how do we create space in our lives to tend to being present to Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus the way that Mary did? And resist having the Martha tendencies. Well, first, I think we need to consider our priorities. The Mary and Martha account invites us to take stock of our own lives and to examine in our priorities and to examine what our priorities should be. The reality is, is there is so much calling for our attention. There are so many invitations that we receive on a day-to-day basis. But Jesus' message in our passage is clear. There is a better and a worse choice to be made when we consider all these invitations that are coming at us. 
of all the invitations, of all the demands of our society to be a certain type of person, to be a certain type of person in our schools, to be a certain type of parent, to be a certain type of employer, to climb some sort of career ladder, to have a certain type of financial portfolio, to be a retired person in a certain type of way, experiencing certain types of things. All of these are invitations. All of these are screaming at us what is necessary. And among all those invitations comes the invitation of Jesus who's saying actually one thing is necessary. And when we consider our priorities, we are forced to ask the question, what am I going to choose among all of these invitations? But the fact is that most of us don't want to choose. We don't want to choose one thing over another. But in this story, Jesus is making it so clear that when we make that choice, there is a choice that is better and there is a choice that is worse. There is a better choice to be made. And I think we know that, so we resist making a choice altogether. But the result of it is we are trying to do a hundred things that we deem to be necessary. And we're exhausted. Because everything is necessary. And we're frantic and we're hurried. We are troubled and anxious and worried about many things because we think that everything is necessary. Our priorities are completely out of whack. Jesus is calling us to make a choice. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that we can't actually serve two masters. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says that we can't have multiple things be necessary. In Luke 16, when he's speaking specifically of money, he says, You can't serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So we need to ask the question, are there areas in my life where my priorities keep me from being able to abide with Christ and experience the abundance that he has for me? Friends, many of us are like Martha. Martha is incredibly commendable because she opened up space in her home for Jesus to come and be a guest. And we've done that. Many of us in this room have opened up our homes, opened up our lives to Jesus. We said, yes to Jesus, come in. But then like Martha, we get distracted. And suddenly Jesus just occupies a space in our lives rather than taking up residence of the whole thing. And the tragic reality of Martha is that the preparations that she's making, the work that she's doing, the meal that she's cooking, like those beautiful pancakes I made for my daughters, they just consumed them and they're gone. Like Martha's preparations, that's just going to be consumed and forgotten. The value of all that she was doing was only temporary. I'm sure it would have been a wonderful meal. But according to Jesus, Martha needlessly missed out on what was right in front of her. The meal wasn't important. Jesus just wanted Martha. By contrast, Mary positioned herself to receive something that will not be taken away from her. So what are your priorities? Do you have a priority for Jesus, for the one thing that he says is necessary? Or are our priorities stretched thin and we feel pulled in so many directions that we can't actually say yes to Jesus? The other consideration is that of your practices. 
We've been saying over these last few weeks, we all have practices, habits, disciplines, things that we engage in in a day-to-day life, in our day-to-day lives. And the reality is that our practices reflect and shape our desires. Now, in Martha's case, I'd argue that she has practices surrounding her hospitality and her image. Martha knows how to put on a good meal. She knows how to host someone very, very well. But the practices that Martha's engaged in, I would like to argue, and I'm totally speculating, are geared towards maybe bolstering up her own image. Martha wants to appear a certain way. She wants to be the talk of the town. She wants to be the one who cooked Jesus' favorite meal. I wonder if Martha's worth and her value is not totally wrapped up in what she does. Now, because of that, her practices are aligned with those desires. She works diligently hard. She commits herself to creating this great space for Jesus. But her desire for appearance maybe drove her to act in a certain way that ultimately caused her to neglect her guest. But here's the interesting thing. What about Mary's practices? The practice of sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word. I'm curious if Martha would have engaged in Mary's practices. If Martha would have sat at Jesus' feet and heard from him. She probably would have heard about where true treasure lies. She probably would have received from Christ his affirmation and his affection. He probably would have heard from Christ that he means more to her than a great meal. She probably would have heard from Christ that she is loved not for her doing, but for, just, but, but for who she is as a person. Friends, Martha needs practices to orient her heart towards Jesus. We all do. So these last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the importance of a rule of life. And when we think about our priorities and we think about our practices, we rightly return to this idea of a rule of life, which is looking at our lives, our schedules, our commitments, and orienting them in a certain way that we create space for us to be with Jesus, to become more like him, to live the life and experience the life that he has for us. Now, the thing about a rule of life in relation to the Mary and Martha story is, I wonder if some of you ask the question, well, with a rule of life, are we not just adding to all that we deem necessary? You know, week after week, we're getting up here talking about how important a rule of life is. As if to say, this is just another necessary thing that you need to do. But friends, I want to correct that thinking because a rule of life ultimately is all about creating space. It's easy for us to feel overwhelmed with a rule of life. We feel like we're adding all of these things to to our already busy schedules, but that's not how it's supposed to work. Rather, a rule of life is about creating space. It's about looking at our calendars, our commitments. It's about considering our priorities and learning to say no. It's about taking things out of an already busy schedule. It's about identifying areas where we feel troubled and anxious and asking the question, how do I actually change how this is working in my life so that I experience more freedom and have more space for Jesus? A rule of life done well will be one that helps us enter into a place of rest, a place where we can experience the easy yoke of Jesus, 
A rule of life done well helps us to enter into experiencing the abundance in life and deep satisfaction that Jesus has for us. But it won't simply happen to us. We need to say no to many things in order to say yes to the one thing that Jesus has for us. And I'm going to keep picking on Martha. But the thing about this story that's so interesting to me is like, what if Martha just made a simple meal? What if they had leftover bread from the day before? Martha simply had to reorient her practices in relation to hospitality. Because cooking a meal wasn't bad. Preparing the food for Jesus wasn't bad. It was the way she went about it. If Martha was to consider a rule of life, she might create a rule that says she's going to prioritize people over creating this great experience for them. And the outworking of that might have been leftover bread. And then she could have created that space for her to sit at Jesus' feet. Friends, we need to hear the invitation and the freedom offered to us in this account of Mary and Martha. We need to hear the invitation and the freedom offered to us in this story that Jesus is saying to you, you don't have to work so hard. You don't have to labor for his affection. You don't have to have your identity based in all that you can do and all that you can achieve. Jesus is saying, you're not about your achievements. You're not about your doing. I love you for who you are. I love you because I created you. I proved my love for you by sending my son to die for you. Jesus welcomes us to come to him, not all dressed up, not all perfect, not all put together. But in a state of exhaustion, in a state of brokenness. However we come, he receives us. But the question is, are your current priorities, are your current practices in life actually allowing you space so that you can come to him? So that you can be with him? So that you can learn about his easy yoke and his abundant life? Well, I wanted this morning focus on one practice that I think is one that will help us to experience rest in our lives. And if you don't have this practice in your life right now, you are going to um, not like me in a minute, um, and you're going to resist this. But I want to invite you to consider your rule of life and consider what it would look like to incorporate the practice of Sabbath into your probably very busy life. (laughs) Sabbath is very simply a day of rest. It's working six days a week and intentionally setting aside the seventh day to cease, to rest. And friends, Sabbath is so key to the idea of rule of life because Sabbath done well is so much more than just one day. But if you're realistically going to take a day off a week, a day intentionally set aside for rest... It's going to change the way you live the other six days. By considering the practice of Sabbath, we're forced to look at our life as a whole. We're forced to look at our priorities and our commitments and say, is this actually realistic? Because my guess is if any of you have uh, children under the age of 18, the thought of taking a Sabbath is just a laughable matter. But let me unpack Sabbath for us just really quickly. The Bible has a lot to say about the practice of Sabbath. Um, It comes from creation. They would say this is a creation ordinance, which is an an interesting uh, theological phrase, which is saying that it was commanded at creation. Very simply, God 
created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, what's really interesting about the Genesis account is that um, the, the chapter break in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 um, is in a really, really bad spot because the way that this, the story is building, it crescendos, it climaxes on the seventh day, not on the sixth, but we miss it because we read Genesis 1 and then the next day we read Genesis 2. But if you read the story as a whole, it builds to this place of rest. God works diligently for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. He ceases. He ceases. That word rest, him stopping his work, is where we get the word Sabbath. God takes a Sabbath. Later on, when the, he's creating a nation out in the desert, the people of Israel receive the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, he delivers the commandment for them to Sabbath. But what's interesting is the commandments repeated in Deuteronomy and the reason for Sabbath is different in Deuteronomy than it is in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 20, after he commands Sabbath, this is the reason given for Sabbath. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the reason that we're given for Sabbath rest in Exodus is that we need to rest because God rested. God set the example for us to rest. And then we get to Deuteronomy at the retelling of the, uh, the Sabbath command. Sabbath is commanded and a different reason is given. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Here we are commanded to Sabbath. We're commanded to rest because you are no longer slaves. Rest, because you're no longer slaves. This is what's interesting about living under this urgency and living under a a, a posture of everything being necessary. You are a slave to all of those things. If you are saying, I can't stop, I can't not work, I have to keep going, you're a slave to those things. No matter how much you want to say you're free to do whatever you want, you're not. You're a slave to your schedule. You're a slave to your job. You're a slave to whatever it is that is pulling you forward. God instituted Sabbath as a way to free you from slavery. To free you from all the things that you think are necessary. To free you from the demands of all that you consider to be urgent. Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, he had, a lot of, he had a lot of rebuke about Sabbath in the gospel. That's not lost on me. But Jesus didn't say not, not to Sabbath, okay? Jesus doesn't say not to Sabbath. Jesus rebukes the way that Sabbath was spun as a way to manipulate and control people and to ultimately bend the hand of God. That's a whole other teaching. But this is what Jesus says about Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which is to say the Sabbath is a gift. The Sabbath is meant to serve you. A Sabbath is a space for you to rest. Friends, we are commanded and invited to receive this gift, to cease from our work for 24 hours. This is a spiritual practice. And we're invited each week to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. It is not simply a day off. So as you hear this, you're probably asking, what does Sabbath look like? And I, want to go, I just need to back up. Well, I don't want to sound legalistic about Sabbath at all. I'm not up here saying, you must take a Sabbath. Don't, please don't hear that. Because that's what Jesus had an issue with. Rather, I'm saying, God has given you a gift of rest. Will you receive that gift? What does this Sabbath 
would look like. To Sabbath well, it begins with anticipating Sabbath, which means we prepare for it. We, we order our lives in such a way that we are actually able to take that day off. We prepare meals in advance. We think through all the things that might be stressful to us or feel like burdensome work. And we make sure that it's taken care of before the Sabbath. This is where those of you who love hard work can say, yes. You do the hard work on the other six days so that you can rest on the seventh. And when you get to that seventh day, you enter it incredibly intentionally. A couple of phrases that I've appreciated around Sabbath. First is the idea of setting down your tools. So identify what are the tools, what are the things I use day in and day out to do all the work, all the things that I feel are necessary. Set them down. Another phrase I love is cease from what we feel is necessary. Cease from the things you feel are necessary. So that, that compulsion to, to, I just have to do that thing. I have to write that email. I have to do that thing. No. On Sabbath, you say no to those. Some good Sabbath um, frameworks I've heard. Uh, this one is in four parts. Stop, rest, delight, worship. Stop, rest, delight, worship. This means that our Sabbath is, is a day of, of relaxation. It's a day where we can put up our feet. But it's also a day where we play. We do things that we love. If you have young kids, it's a day you're down on your hands and knees with your kids laughing and, and just engaging in those moments of play because they're way better at it than we are as adults. It's a day where we intentionally worship, turn our attention to God. Eugene Peterson reduces these four to the simple pray and play. That's all it's about. For me, Sabbath begins uh, usually either on, on Friday nights or Thursday night, depending on my wife and I's commitments for the week. We begin our Sabbath with a supper meal. It's always a special meal. If we've done enough preparation, the meal will conclude with a chocolate chip cookie freshly baked in a cast iron pan with vanilla ice cream all over it. That's the delight part, you know. And we eat a good meal. We have dessert. We light a candle in our house that stays lit for the 20, well, not the full 24 hours, but we have a candle on our table that's our Sabbath candle, which changes the physical space we are in that reminds us that we're in a place of rest. We work hard to, to get outside, we make a priority to get outside and be in creation. We play with our children. We do coloring books together. And we take opportunity to be with friends and family um, if we're able to. The reality for my family is we get Sabbath wrong probably more than we get it right. But it is an incredible gift. Uh, a man in our church that I have uh, been mentoring this past season asked me, we've been talking about Sabbath, and he asked me the question, he said, do you find that Sabbath gives you life? And it was interesting in the context of his question because I knew what he meant. He meant, you know, like, does it just like fill you up? Do you come out of Sabbath just like pumped up and ready for another week? And the answer to that question was no. I don't come out of Sabbath like super excited. Sometimes I do. But the reality for me was the, the answer to his question though was actually yes. Because that idea of giving life, yes. The discipline of stopping from what was necessary week after week was so important. My wife and I are in a unique season. As you guys know, Pastor Norb was on sabbatical. I had more responsibilities at the church. Um, we welcomed a, a new child into the world. We have three kids under the age of four and a half with a newborn baby. We aren't sleeping much. 
Um, but something that I was told about Sabbath when I was in, in college was that if you keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath will keep you. And when I look at these past six months and all the busyness and all the chaos and all the change in my life, Sabbath has certainly kept me. It's been a space where I can rest. It's been a space where God has spoken life into my very body that's been able to, been able to help me continue um, in ministry. It's been a real gift. So my question for you is, will you receive that gift as well? We've been talking about rule of life for the last um, two weeks. Um, and so I invite you, look at your current rule of life. What would it look like for your family to practice a weekly Sabbath? Maybe that's a Sunday, you begin on a Saturday night. You make church participation part of your Sabbath experience. You unplug, maybe you turn your phones off. And you just enter into this place of rest. Again, if we do Sabbath well, it will change the way that we live the other six days of the week. We realize that we are a people who live as Christians. We need to be a people who live from a posture of rest. Not a posture of hurry. Not a posture of running after all the different things and opportunities in the world. But from a posture of knowing the one thing that is needed. The one thing that is necessary. I wanted to kind of give a final word around rule of life and, and even Sabbath by speaking to our young families. I know there's many in our church who have kids uh, in grade school, and that's a unique season. And I'm sure that as you've heard us talk about rule of life, you're like, that's a great idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, kids just make everything so different. But my word for you is do not despise the season you're in. Your children are a gift. A season with young kids is not the season for us to achieve whatever utopia we have in our minds. And when you talk about the world having all this commentary on what is necessary, there's a lot of really unbiblical, unhealthy messaging around what it looks like to be a parent and what it looks like to be a happy family. We need to orient ourselves in the word of God and to choose to see our families the way that God sees them. And to have a vision for our family that is consistent with the vision that God has for our family. For me, this means that I often have to take my desires, my selfish desires in this season, and surrender them to God. I have to surrender my expectations of quiet time and prayer to the Lord. I have to surrender my expectations of spiritual discipline to the Lord. Why? Because every morning I get up super early to pray. That's the same morning that Libby gets up super early. And she wants to pray with me, I guess. <laughs> and when I seek silence and solitude, my kids are there. <laughs> when I seek to like, go do like, um, extra time in prayer, my kids are there. I'm not sure how they figured that out, but they seem to follow me wherever I go. So how do I practice silence and solitude? How do I press into these practices? How do I have a rule of life? Well, I choose not to despise the season. And friends, if the rule of life that you desire requires that you not have children for it to be achieved, it is the wrong rule of life. And it is not the rule of life that God has called you to in this season. We need to embrace our limitations. We need to invite our children into it. This is probably embarrassing for me to share as a pastor, but I've had many a morning where my morning devotions turn into us reading the Jesus Storybook Bible. And instead of me doing an exegetical study in John or a meditative reading, I sit with a kid's storybook Bible and I read out loud to my daughters. And we talk about it and we pray together. It's not the most spiritual, but in a sense it actually is. 
and I be present to them and to the Lord in that moment. We take every moment as it comes. Last night, I remember, um, yeah, just last night, this was a gift. Uh, Jack was freaking out, our newborn, he's screaming his head off. And um, I took him downstairs so that my wife could try to put the other two to bed. And Jack is screaming. And again, part of rule of life, I try to have worship music playing in our, in our kitchen. Worship music's playing. And I'm just rocking Jack. And it's just suddenly I'm in this moment of prayer. Just worshiping the Lord and praying and holding my screaming son. Jesus wants to meet you in those moments. And what's really hard about those moments is you don't shove those into a rule of life. But it's about having this posture of only one thing is needed. And then lastly, to to parents and actually even to everyone, I encourage us, let's talk about it. Let's talk about our rules of life. Especially those of you with young families. If, If you're just trying to figure this out, trying to figure out Sabbath and it's not working, come talk to me. Talk to other families in our church. Learn from one another. We aren't meant to walk with Jesus alone, right? We've been talking about this for months. We walk with Jesus in the company of others. So I invite us to do that well uh, together. Well, I'm not sure how you're hearing this message today. In the context of the Mary and Martha passage, to each and every one of us comes this continued question. Are we going to live for the one thing that is necessary? Or continue trying to chase down all the things that the world tells us is necessary? Are we willing to say no? Are we willing to say no to all the demands so that we can posture ourselves in such a way where we can actually receive the life that Jesus has for us? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. Sorry for going long this morning again. I promise it'll stop in the, in the weeks ahead. But I want you to imagine yourself in this scene. Imagine yourself at Martha's house and hear Jesus say these words to you that you are worried and troubled about many things but only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is necessary. And do you know what I love about what Jesus says about Mary's practice? He says it will not be taken away from her. Friends, if we give ourselves to Jesus the blessings of that will not be taken away from us. Let's pray together. Father God, we are flooded with invitations in and out of season, day after day, to pursue everything as necessary. But Jesus, you are calling us to the one thing that is needed, the one thing that is necessary. And so Lord, we just posture our hearts now and invite your spirit to speak to us. Lord, help us to reorder our priorities and our practices in such a way that we are able to and ready to and eager to sit at your feet and to receive from you all that you have for us. God, give us glimpses of that even today, even now. Help us to receive the gift of abundant life. And Lord, may that wash away the trouble and the anxiety and the worry. Help us to taste and drink deep of your peace as we sit at your feet. And Lord, if our lives need significant reorientation, if our lives need to be taken apart and put back together, give us the grace to do that. But help us to say no to you. Help us to see where we are maybe trying to serve two masters. May our lives honor and glorify you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.